listening to the Destiny Community Church Podcast. Today we're going to start a new series called Legacy Living. Bill, Bill was a single guy, and it wasn't that he was mooching off of his father, um, although he did live at home with his father. But he was working in the family business, but, but he was living there to, to help take care of his dad. And he knew that one day that he was going to inherit a fortune once his elderly father passed away. And so Bill wanted two things out of life. The first thing Bill wanted was he wanted to learn how to invest his inheritance. When that day came, he wanted to know that he was going to, to do the right thing with those funds. And so he, he wanted to know how to invest his money. And the second thing that he wanted is he wanted to find a wife to share that fortune with. And so one, one evening, uh, Bill found, found himself in an investment seminar, and he, he looked across the room, and he spotted the most beautiful woman that he had ever seen. I mean, anyone else had failed in comparison. She caught his eye. Her natural beauty just took his breath away. And so he mustered up the confidence. He walked across the room, and, and he looked at this woman right in her eyes, and he said, I may look like just an ordinary man to you, he said, but just in a few years, my elderly father is going to pass away, and when he does, I will inherit $20 billion. $20 billion. This woman was impressed. And so she asked him, she said, well, do you have a business card? He was prepared. He reached into his pocket. He handed her a business card, and she went on her way. And two weeks later, she was his stepmother. Um, okay. All right. As we begin this new series today... I'm going to be talking a lot about legacy. Over the next few weeks, I'm just gonna, you're going to hear this word often, and specifically legacy living and what that means, what that looks like for us as believers. What, what does it look like to, to live out the legacy that God has bestowed upon our lives? And, and we're going to look at our inheritance. We're, we're going to look at what we leave behind for others. And then we're going to look at our eternal investments. That's right, eternal investments. Because each one of us, every day, we're making eternal investments. Or we have the opportunity to make eternal investments. And so today is primarily going to be focused on us as individuals. Okay? Because I believe that it takes uh, healthy individuals in order to, to make up healthy families, healthy marriages. And, uh, and, and we're going to cover some of that stuff too, but, but today it's, it's about us as individuals. And by the end of this series, we're going to be talking about us as, as a church family. And so us corporately. And so just understand, we're on a journey with this series and we're going to get there, but today it has to be personal. It has to be what it means to live in legacy for me. Today I want to kick off the series with this particular subject, lacking a legacy. Lacking a legacy. Will you say that with me? lacking a legacy. Now, I'm going to be reading today out of Exodus chapter 17 and Genesis chapter 25. Exodus chapter 17 and Genesis chapter 25. And our texts this morning, they're going to come from these two seemingly unrelated events in the Bible. Just from first glance, when you look at them, you're going to be like, what does one have to do with the other? They're separated by four or 500 years, and, and it, it, they just don't seem like they're related. They don't seem like they go together. If you will stay with me, if you will just, just, just stay attentive, stay focused, if you'll stay with me, um, we'll either tie them together or I'll, I'll trip on the rope, one or the other. And it's all going to be entertaining, so just watch. Just watch, and we'll see, we'll see what happens. But I'm praying that God will use this today 
to really set it up in our hearts to, to live a life of legacy as it relates to the kingdom of God. Amen? Exodus chapter 17. I want to begin reading with verse 8. Exodus 17 and verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Now let me stop there just for a moment, because this is, this is so important. Joshua soon will be taking over and leading the children of Israel. And so this is an important moment because this enemy, Amalek, the Amalekites, as, you, as they will be referred to in, in the future text, um, the, these people are going to be a thorn in the flesh for Joshua. It's, it's going to be a constant battle. Uh, and, and, and not just for Joshua, but just for years and years to come, it's, it, it's going to be a fight. But but God instructs Moses, he says, I want you to write this down. He said, this is prophetic, I want you to write it down, and I want you to make sure that you say it to Joshua. Say this to Joshua. So then the Lord said to Moses, verse 14, write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. In other words, God's not going to let them defeat us. No matter how many times they show up, no matter how, how, many, how often we see their ugly head, God is going to make sure that we win this battle from generation to generation. Now I want to back up four to 500 years. Okay, So we're going back in history, back before this, to Genesis chapter 25. And I want to start reading with verse 21. I know at first it's going to seem like it doesn't fit. Just stay with me. Genesis 25 and 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Somebody say, oh God, 60 years old. Lord, take me now. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? 
Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. May God bless his word today. Amen. Listen, for, for some of the, the young families that are in the room right now, um, if your children are, are hounding you about giving them a little brother or little sister, you know, they, they just are relentless and they're just like, I, I want to be a big brother, I want to be a big sister, you and dad, you know, you and mom need to have another child. If they are relentless in that and, you, and you're trying to extinguish that, I'm going to give you some good parenting advice. You want to write this down, definitely, because this helps. If they want a little brother or little sister, all you have to do is just remind your children, just inform them that another child will give them less inheritance. It works every time, every time, because children are stingy. They want it all, and they, it's mine, mine. First words that they, the, the first word they learn is mine, mine. They want that. And, and if you are a child, a, a, a single child, if you're the only child, then you get 100% of the inheritance. It's all yours. If they, if they leave anything behind, that's yours. If, if you are one of two children, then you have to split it. It's 50-50. If you are one of three children, you only get a third and, and when you explain that to a child who wants a little brother or a little sister, it's amazing how quickly their wants and their desires for a new sibling will change. I promise you it will work. However, church, listen to me. Do not confuse our modern 21st century practices with those of the ancient Middle Bronze Age. Don't confuse it. It was a completely different time than the way that, that we operate you see, in, in that day and age, inheritances were not split equally among siblings. The, the birthright, it, it was the inheritance that one would receive at their father's death. And Jacob and Esau's father, Isaac, he was a very wealthy man. God had blessed him. It, it, he, he was the son of Abraham. Abraham was wealthy. Isaac was wealthy. And, and, and so the, he was a wealthy man. And, and you can only imagine how much he had to leave to his sons. Now, in that day and age, when a, when a father died, they would count his surviving children and then they would add one to the count. They would then divide the inheritance uh, many ways, and the eldest child, he would receive uh, two portions. It's what we refer to as a double portion. All throughout Scripture, when you read about a double portion, it's referring back to this birthright that you get twice the blessing of, of, of someone else. We watch this happen, and, and many times a double portion is related to Elijah and Elisha, the prophet that took his young protege with him, and, and he said, I want a double portion of your anointing. And, and he was saying, I'm a spiritual son to you. Grant me a double portion of the anointing of God that is on your life. And so we read about this throughout Scripture. The double portion is referring to that birthright. This, this inheritance practice, it's clearly defined in the law of Moses. We read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 17. It says he, being the father, the dad, he must recognize the rights of his oldest son, the son of the wife he does not love. Now listen, he, he, he's talking about a very specific instance here. He said it doesn't matter even if, if you don't love his mom. He said, he's still your firstborn son. So it's, it's, it's really clarifying it. He must recognize the rights of his oldest son, the son of the wife he does not love, by giving him a double portion. He is the first son of his father's virility, and the rights of the firstborn belong to him. The Bible's very plain on this. 
this double portion came as a right of birth. And what I mean by that is if you were born first, then you had the, the birthright and you would receive the double portion of the inheritance. This is what, in our text today, this is what Esau sold to Jacob, his twin brother. He sold his birthright for a bowl of stew when he returned hungry from hunting. He got back from a hunting trip, and, and he said, I'm starving to death. Can I have some of that? And, 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 and it, w- when we read this, it's, 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 it's troubling to us that Esau gave up half of his inheritance, one-third, one-third of Isaac's estate for a single bowl of red bean soup. That's what he gave up. He gave up an extra third of his inheritance, a double portion for a bowl of soup. I know what some of you are thinking, though. And this is what goes through all of our minds as we, as we follow this story. And if you were raised in church or if you know the, the, the history here, if you know this story, we, we've often, often, we, we put this blame and even the shame on Jacob for taking advantage of his brother like that. It's like, how could a brother do that? You, you called him at a very vulnerable moment. We all knew he wasn't going to die. He, he says, I'm starving to death. What good is that birthright to me if I die? You're not going to die. You're going to be okay. But he called him in this vulnerable moment, and often we point our finger at Jacob, and, and we're like, how could you do it? But for years, we have misrepresented who Jacob was, and we've labeled him as this mischievous deceiver and liar, and even some of the translations of the Bible, it, it, it refers to him as a deceiver. Um, Jeremiah seventeen nine is a, is a very unique passage of scripture that really has nothing to do with our story except for one word, one word. And I want to read this to you, Jeremiah seventeen and nine. It says, "The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful," is what it says. Like you can't trust your heart. The Hebrew root uh, for, for this word translated as deceitful is the same root word of the name Jacob and the, what the name Jacob is d- derived from. Same word, same root word in the Hebrew, Jacob, and this word translated as deceitful. But deceitful is not really the best interpretation of this word. And I'll explain this to you. It really means supplanter. Supplanter. In other words, in Jeremiah 17 and 9, it means that the heart will put itself in a position that it was not meant to be in. It will supplant itself. It's a supplanter. The heart will put itself in a position that it was never meant to be in. Now, this helps us understand why Rebecca and Isaac named their second-born son Jacob. Why they named him that. At his birth, as we read in our text, at his birth, as his brother, his older brother, was being born, he reaches out and grabs the heel. This this soon-to-be-born baby grabs the heel of his brother, trying to pull him back so that he can supplant himself. He wants to be in the world first. I want to go ahead of him. And, And so they named him Jacob, supplanter. And these characteristics, they seemed to follow Jacob for most of his life. It kind of became who he was. It was, it was his character. I want you to listen to how many years later, after they're adults, listen to how his, his older brother Esau described Jacob. In Genesis chapter 27, verse 36, it says, Esau replied, Is he not rightly named Jacob the supplanter? For he has supplanted me two times. He took away my birthright, and now he has taken away my blessing. 
Have you not reserved a blessing for me? This, his father's on his deathbed, and he says, listen, my brother, my brother has passed me in line. He has figured out a way to get ahead of me for this, this, this birthright. He's figured out a way now to get ahead of me in the blessing. Dad, you've already laid your hands on him, and you've blessed him. Now, before you die, is there anything left over for me? Now, the birthright was that double portion of the inheritance, but the blessing when his father laid hands on him before he died, the blessing would bestow upon him position and power as the head of the household. He would be in charge of, of the whole family. Everyone related to them, he would be in charge. Now, Jacob had put himself in another's position for his own benefit. Supplanter. He has put himself in a position that someone else probably should have had. And he did this for his own benefit. But before you knock him, listen to me, please listen. Before you point fingers at him and you ridicule him, just remember this. You put yourself in someone else's place as it relates to your spiritual life because you don't deserve to be where you're at. I don't deserve to be where I, Our righteousness is as filthy rags. We don't deserve to have the position in the kingdom of God that we hold as children of God. We don't deserve it. But we have been supplanted. We have, we have put ourselves in a place that we should not probably be, but yet by the grace of God we find ourselves yet. Better yet, better yet, you allowed someone that did not deserve death to be put in your place so that you could have a better life. You allowed the Son of God to take your place, supplant. You allowed him to be put in your place all so that you could have a better life. When you start looking at it like that, it, suddenly you, you, you feel a little bit more at ease with Jacob, right? He's not, he's not too different than you are. But the real tragedy of this story is not Jacob, the supplanter, the deceiver, if you will. The real tragedy of this story here is, is Esau and that he's willing to sell his birthright for food. He's willing to trade a double portion of the inheritance for food. And then the Bible says that he despised his birthright. You learn to despise the things that you don't value. He despised his birthright. It wasn't important to him. Jacob, on the other hand, Jacob valued the birthright. It held significance in his life, and he would stop at nothing to get it. Don't get in the way of Jacob as it relates to the birthright. Jacob wants the birthright, and, and he will stop at nothing to achieve that. And sometimes I wonder, church, if God is looking for people that will pursue him and not let anything get in their way. Nothing can stop them from getting to God. Not circumstances, not friendships, not family, not their reputation, not sickness, not disappointment. Nothing can stop them. There is not a roadblock on this earth that can stop them from finding God and getting into the presence of God because they want to be blessed by God so much. And I just wonder sometimes, is that what God is longing for? People that will worship him in spirit and in truth, that they will just go after God at all costs, a people that stop at nothing to experience more of God. God, give us a double portion 
The problem with America today is that we're lacking a legacy. We don't have a legacy. We have no inheritance. We, we live paycheck to paycheck. Most, most of America lives paycheck to paycheck, leaving nothing for the next generation because the generation before us left nothing to us. And so there's, there's no inheritance there. But, but worse than a lack of material blessings, we have no spiritual legacy. Hear me out. We are lacking in spiritual legacy And it seems that with each generation, we are getting farther and farther away from God. With each generation, it's like someone drew a line and and, and we had a generation that was back here pushing away. The next generation is a little bit closer. The next generation is a little bit closer. And before you know it, the next generation is crossing that line. It's like there's no longer holiness involved with it anymore. And I know that's a bad word in some churches. And in other churches, it's, it's all they live for is holiness. But it's not true holiness because it's holiness based on, on, on how we look. Listen, I, I grew up in, in a holiness movement, and it was like the, the longer the women's hair and, and when they would wrap it up and it would look like a beehive up on top of the, the bigger the bun, the closer to heaven, you know. It's, it's like that's the atmosphere I grew up in. That has nothing to do with holiness. That has everything to do with a lot of Aquanet hairspray bobby pins and so forth, okay? I grew up in, in, in an atmosphere that, that men couldn't grow their hair long. Women had to wear long skirts or long dresses. Men had to wear long sleeve shirts, never any shorts. That, that's a tough place to be. And they labeled it as holiness. When I talk about holiness, that's not what I'm talking about. Holiness is when we, we, we live and we pray for the conviction of the Holy Spirit to highlight the things in our lives that keep us separated from, from God, the things that make us less like Christ. And, and we learn to let the Holy Spirit reveal those things. And then we say, okay, God, now I need the strength to work on that because I, I don't want that separating me from you anymore. And it turns into a holy living. That's what I'm talking about with holiness. And it seems like with each generation, we're pushing farther and farther away from, from a desire to be holy, to be like Christ. Listen, I cannot accomplish that on my own. But my desire is to be holy like he is holy. And just because I can't accomplish that on my own, I should not be pushing away from that. I should be doing everything within my ability to get closer and closer to that. And with the things that I can't do, the things I can't accomplish, trust his grace in that process. But with every generation, we're pushing farther and farther away from that. And that's why we have a lack of spiritual legacy. And the tragedy in this is that we witness these generational curses. Listen, call them whatever you want to. Some people are offended by that. And they're like, no, there's no such thing as a generational curse. Call it a trait, call it a habit, whatever you want to call it, okay? I'm not here to debate with you. But we witness these generational curses that are passed down from grandfather to father to son to grandson and to his children. And they just keep haunting one generation to the next. Men and women, we watch this. And and Numbers 14 and 18, it kind of spells this out for us. Listen to what it says. And and we love the first part of this, by the way. 
The Lord is slow to anger. Somebody give me an amen with that. How many of you are thankful God is slow to anger when it comes to your rebelling butt? Amen? God is slow to anger and filled with unfailing love. Thank you, God, for your unfailing love. Forgiving, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion. Yes! We love this, right? He is slow to anger, filled with unfailing love, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion, but he does not excuse the guilty. No, oh, I didn't think you wanted to clap right there. All right. Because that's where it's like, oh, wait, what? He does not excuse the guilty. He loves you that much that he will not excuse the guilty. He will expose the sin. That's what the law does. It exposes the sin. He exposes the sin so that there's impurities you can work on and you can allow the Holy Spirit to work that out of you. He does not excuse the guilty. He lays the sins of the parents upon their children and the entire family is affected even children in the third and fourth generations. He just described to you what I just described to you. Generational curses that are passed down. This, this doesn't mean that God will unjustly punish children for their parents' mistakes. How many of you are thankful that you're not going to be punished for your parents' mistakes? Amen? Some of you, I know some of your parents. You really need to be thankful that he will not punish you for your parents' mistakes. That's not what he's saying here. But I'll tell you what he is saying this scripture serves as a warning that sin is easily passed from one generation to the next. It's giving us that warning that if you don't conquer it in your generation, if you don't conquer it living under that roof, it's going to be passed. We, we, we get these traits. We, we, we gain these generational curses from our parents that, that their parents <clears throat> excuse me, that their parents struggle with. And it's this continuous cycle that never ends. And we're often haunted. With these reoccurring acts because we have no legacies to uphold. You know what this looks like. You know these generational curses that keep haunting your families. Alcoholics beget alcoholics. Addicts beget addicts, adulterers. They produce adulterers. If the cycle's not broken, racists produce racists. You'll never convince me it's, not, it's still a problem. It's still a problem. And if you don't get it fixed in your heart, you'll produce exactly what you are. Narcissists produce narcissists. Gossipers produce Gossipers, worriers produce worriers, and the faithless will produce faithless. The last thing I want is from my, my kids who are now grown, but the last thing I wanted was for them to grow up and not have faith in God. My Lord, if, if that's where we're at, if we really don't believe this, if I really don't want my kids to have faith in God, then let's quit everything we're doing. Let's sell this building and let's get on with our lives. But if we really believe it, if we stand upon that, and we want our children to have faith in God, then they need to see us have faith in God. We've got to live like our God can do it. We've got to pray like our God can do it. We've got to know that we've got a God that is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we can ask or think. We've got to believe that. Now, let's return to our seemingly unrelated text and see if we can make sense of them, okay? You don't have to turn there, but in Genesis chapter 36, it explains to us 
that Amalek was Esau's grandson, the one that sold his, his birthright to his brother for a bowl of soup. His grandson's name is Amalek. And by the time of the Exodus, when we get over to Exodus 17, where we were reading about, about the battle that took place, by the time of the Exodus from Egypt, there had been a nation that had been formed from the descendants of Amalek, and the nation was called Amalek. And from this moment on, they'll be referred to in the Bible as Amalekites. The prophet Balaam, in, in, in Numbers 24 and 20, he, he referred to the nation of Amalek like this. It said, then he looked on Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first among the nations. What he's saying is they were the first ones to attack Israel. He says they were the first among the nations. But its end is utter destruction. Oh, stay with me, church. Stay with me. This is going to be good for some of you. The Amalekites, Amalek, descendants of Esau, are fighting against the Hebrews, the descendants of Jacob. Two nations are in your womb, and they will war with one another. The descendants of Esau are fighting against the descendants of Jacob, and, and they're fighting a fight that they can't win. And here's the main reason why. Israel, Jacob, remember God changes his name to Israel? Israel has the birthright. And with the birthright comes the blessing. Listen, you, you better learn to pick your battles. You don't want to go into a battle with someone who is blessed of God. Israel was blessed by God. And the physical birth order didn't matter because Jacob went after God. It didn't stop with the birthright. There was one moment when, when he was a grown man that, that he, he wrestled with God all night long. He wrestled and he, and he refused to let go until God blessed him. This man pursued the blessings of God. He went after God and God obliged. Jacob, Israel, was blessed by God then. And might I say this? Israel is still blessed by God. Listen, I'm, I'm not wanting to get political with you. I don't care which side of the aisle you're on. It really doesn't matter to me. They all make me sick. But whichever side you're on, you're like, well, you, you just went political. Not really. I just, I, I, I live in a theocracy where you're stuck in a democracy. But, but never, never mind. But sorry, Tim. I know you disagree with that, but it's okay. Tim says we're not in a democracy, but he's a politician. You can't trust him. Um, <laughs> sorry, bro. <laughs> Don't mute my mic. <laughs> okay. Listen, I don't care which side of the aisle you're on. As it relates to Israel, you better find yourself on Israel's side. They've got the birthright and they've got the blessing. There's a reason why they cannot wipe them out. And they've been trying for, for hundreds of thousands of years. They've been trying to wipe them out. Even when they were scattered all over the world. God still protected them. When, they try, when Hitler tried to wipe out their entire race, God still brought them back and reclaimed their land, and they are a nation today. You better find yourself on Israel's side, church. 
It, and, and, and I know I know some of you showed up today just because you're, you're hoping I'll talk about the Ukraine and something. I've got, I've got lots of end-time opinions about that. The problem with that is we've all got opinions because no one knows the day or the hour. No one knows. We don't know that. So I'm, I'm not going to get up here and I'm not going to pretend like, like I know what's happening in world events. I've got opinions on that. But I'm telling you this, it doesn't matter what happens in this world. I know whose side I want to be found on. And I know that I want the birthright and the blessing of my God. That's what I want. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God is prepping Moses to go to talk to, to Pharaoh. And God tells Moses, he says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. God just declared it. It doesn't matter if, if Esau was born first. God said, Jacob, Israel is my firstborn son. When God says that, buckle up. Because God's going to protect that nation. Israel is my firstborn son. That physical birth order never mattered to God. Now, it's interesting that as long as Moses held the staff of God up in that battle against Amalek, as long as Moses held what is referred to in our text as the staff of God, more on that in just a moment, but as long as he held that up, Israel would win the battle. When his arms would get tired, then Amalek would begin winning. So they finally had the common sense to put a rock under his, under his, his leg so he could sit down. And then Aaron came on one side of him and, and Hur came on the other side while Joshua was on the battlefield fighting and they held his arms up and as long as the staff of God was raised up, Israel was winning the fight. Remember that. Many of you have heard me teach this throughout the years. This, this poor staff, it, it has gone from where we started our church, which was the old student center. It's made its way over to the middle school and it lived in a closet at the middle school and we had church over there and then um, eventually it made its way here and, and this morning I had to go digging through a closet and I found it. You can't see it, but there's these notches right here that I've, I've carved into it. There's five notches right there. And these notches are, are important because you see the way it worked with a shepherd. Every time a predator, an enemy of his sheep would come along and he would defend his sheep against that predator he would take something sharp and he would cut a notch it, it's where the term another notch in the belt as, as, as if that's victorious and those notches serve as a reminder that the next time that a, a bear a lion or a predator showed up the shepherd would, would take his staff and he would run his fingers across those notches and they would serve as a reminder that you've been here before. Act like it. You've already defeated one, two, three, four, five predators already. You have successfully defended your sheep. You can do this. And it just served as, as, as a self-encouragement. Just let me be reminded of what I have already done. 
Hebrews 11 and 21, New Testament refers back to Jacob in the Old Testament. And it says this, remember the faith chapter, the hall of faith. It says, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. He worshiped God as he leaned on all of the successes that God had brought to his life. And God had blessed Jacob's life. Church, hear me. God blessed his life. His life was full of successes. That birthright and that blessing, it paid off for him. Before he died, God had put Jacob's son Joseph in a place of authority, a son that he thought was dead. He put him in a place of authority, the number two in command of all of Egypt. God used him to save a nation from, from famine. And, 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 and his life was just blessed. So at the end of his life, Jacob leans on his staff on all the accomplishments that God had produced in his life. And he worshipped God through all of that. 430 years later, there's a new pharaoh in Egypt. And the Bible says that he did not remember Joseph, Jacob's son. He has no idea about a birthright, can care less about a blessing. And now, 430 years later, we find Israel, the Hebrews, as slaves in Egypt. When God was preparing the shepherd Moses to stand before Pharaoh, he told Moses this. Moses was scared to death. He's like, I am not a man of eloquent speech. Why are you picking me? I don't need to be the one. And he says, no, I've, I've chosen you. Moses knew that he was going to have to go up against some of the sorcerers and some of the magicians that they could hypnotize snakes to make them stiff as a board. And he, he says, Moses, what's that in your hand? He says, it's my, my shepherding staff. He says, throw it down. There's so much significance in that. Moses, throw down everything that you've, you've accomplished. Moses, throw down all of your successes. The Bible says Moses threw it down, and when he threw it down, it became a snake. God said, now I want you to reach out and take it by the tail. And Moses said, I don't like snakes very much. I'm going to let somebody else do that. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. The Bible says he reached out and he grabbed it. And when he grabbed it, it turned back into the staff. And from that moment on, it's never referred to again. You can check it out for yourself. Don't take my word for it. It's never referred to again as the staff of Moses. From that moment on, it's always referred to as the staff of God. When he was leading the Hebrews out of Egypt, and they get to the Red Sea and they're cornered with the sea in front of them and Pharaoh's army closing in behind them. The Bible says that Moses lifted the staff of God. He raised every success of our Heavenly Father. He was no longer lifting his own successes, but he raised his Heavenly Father's successes and he raised them up. And when he did, the, the waters began to part and they walked across on dry ground. He used the staff of God to hit a rock to bring forth fresh water. Maybe this is the reason why the psalmist said, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. 
I don't deserve what I have in my life. But his successes, his victories, they comfort me. So on a battlefield, facing the first of the nations that would come against them, Moses has the sense to raise the staff of God. And as long as that staff is raised, Israel wins the war. This staff is symbolic to laying down your own accomplishments and learning to depend on his. Somebody here today, you came here just for that. God brought you here just so you could learn it's not about you. It's not about what you're able to accomplish. You better figure it out fast that every good and perfect gift comes down from above. But this not only signifies laying down all of your successes, but it's also about laying down your failures. Because when you give it all to him, you get to give it all to him. When you give him all the glory, you get to give him all the gore too. Have you ever had someone in your life though that they constantly remind you of your shortcomings and your failures? Don't point at them if they're here. Unless you want me to lay hands on them and anoint them with oil. And, but, but you ever had anybody like that? That all they do is, is talk about your shortcomings? Listen, my, my dad told my mom when they got married, he said, listen, anything before the blood of Jesus, that's off limits. Anything afterwards, we'll talk about. But anything before the blood, it's none of your business. Sometimes I just want to tell some of my naysayers, anything before the blood, it's none of your business. But let's face it, sometimes it's even the stuff that happens after the blood. That they just want to focus on the things that you don't get right. And I'm just like, it's, it's grace. Dr. Rutland spoke about it last week. It's grace unto it. It's grace unto that mountain in my life. It's grace. It's grace. It's grace. But nevertheless, it seems like these people just want to just keep talking about all your shortcomings and all your failures. They don't operate in grace. And what saddens me is that many times they do it in the name of Christianity. Like they're holier than, than me. Like they're closer to God than me. And they do it in the name of Christianity. And, and, and church, I, I submit to you how backwards this is. That's not the spirit of Christ. If you have anybody in your life like that, that all they want to do is, is complain about you, show you your, your shortcomings in your life, it, it's not the spirit of Christ operating in them. It's the spirit of Antichrist. It's everything against Christ. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10 says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser. Hear it? The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Listen, uh, let me just speak to my naysayers really quick. I don't need you accusing me. That's not the people I need in my life. I, 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 need, I need armor bearers in my life. I don't need pallbearers. It's time that we put our accusers on notice, mainly the enemy of our 
of our souls. We need to put him on notice. My past, it's a place of learning, not a place of living. My past is a, is a place of redemption. It's, it's not a place of residence. I'm not living there. You don't need to live there. You don't have that right in my life to live there. Sometimes we have to tell the enemy where to get off, right? And you know, sometimes it, it doesn't even have to be true. It, it can be a lie. It doesn't even have to be true, and, and they'll bring it all up because they want to negate your legacy with a lie. And, and, and listen, the critics, the critics need to understand that your accusations don't make you Christ-like. They make you anti-Christ-like. So l- listen, listen. Fight against me. Lie about me. Bring up my past. But you can't steal my birthright. Some of you need to square your shoulders back, and you need to say that to the enemy. You can lie about me, you can talk about me, you can make accusations about me, you can come against me all you want to, but I refuse to allow you to steal my birthright. The birthright is mine. I am a child of God. I am a co-heir with Christ, and I will not settle. I will not sell my birthright for the lentil lie stew. I will not sell my birthright for the soup of instant gratification. Oh, that's, that's some of the problems right there. You want it right now, and you want it your way, and you're not willing to wait on God, and that instant gratification is, is, is what you're selling your birthright for. Listen, stand up and be a child of God and be a co-heir with Christ. 1 Peter 2 and 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Revelation 5 and 10 says, And you have made them, God, he has made them, a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now understand this. I know that there's coming a a, a millennial reign on this earth where those who are are believers in Christ, we will rule and we will reign with Jesus. I know that day's coming and we will rule and reign with him on this earth. But why wait? I I am a child of God right now. I've got a birthright to my name. I've got a blessing from my heavenly Father. And I refuse to go through life and not be blessed by him and live this thing. I'm going to rule and reign now because my name is royalty. When when, When he wrote my name in the Lamb's book of life, I became part of the family of God. You became part of the family of God. Act like it. Amen. Give God praise. Amen. But think about this. Think about, think about how, tragic, how tragic this is. And, and I know some of you are like, no, no, I, I, don't, I don't agree with you because no, that, was, that was predestined. And, and you, 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 no, pastor, you shouldn't say that. Just, just hear me out. Hear me out. You can, you can email me if you want to, if you disagree with me. It's fine. Email me at scampbell <laughs> at destinycommunitychurch.org. Just, just humor me. Just, just think of this possibility, okay? You, you may not think it's possible, but just, just think of it as it is. Oh, how different the lives of the Amalekites could have been had Esau not sold his birthright for instant gratification, a bowl of soup. 
I know some of you are like, no, 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 no. It, it was prophesied that the older would serve the younger. Okay, okay, I, I get it. I'm not even arguing that. But he still made a decision. To sell the double portion of his father's blessing. You see, some of us, we're, we're living off a single portion right now when we received our salvation, but we're not living as king's kids. It's a double portion. My birthright says I'm entitled to a, a double portion and a blessing. Imagine how different that would look had Esau not sold his birthright for instant gratification. And church, it's time that we stop living in lack and we start living in legacy. And I'm not even talking about prosperity, okay? That's, that's not where it's at. However, I will tell you, some of you, some of you, are living in lack as it relates to resources because you won't trust God and his promises for your life. But I'm not even talking about stewardship today. I'm just talking about we, we need to stop living in lack and start living in legacy because we're, child, we're children of the king. And I want to get what he promised to me. I want to get what he promised to me. Jay Spates was a typical family man that lived in Rockville, Maryland. He was just a pastor that decided to honor his father and continue the research that his father started, looking into their, their family ancestry and tracing their roots back to Africa. He spent many nights on Ancestry.com and other websites looking for possible mat matches that he could link his family to. Finally, after months and months of searching, a, a DNA test revealed that he was a man of royal descent, royal blood from a small African village called Benin, B-E-N-I-N. -E he heard that there was a religious leader coming from Benin that was visiting the United States. And so he visited the event and, a, and an aid at that event, an aid to the spiritual leader. He was able to share his story with him some and that aid gave Jay the phone number to the king of Benin. It was a little, you know, doubtful, but he, he called the number, and the king of Benin answered the phone. And he began to explain to him the research that he had done and that he feels like he, he comes from, from royal blood in Africa, specifically that nation of Benin. The, the king didn't listen and hung up. Apparently, kings don't like to be cold-called, but a few days later, he called back. And this time, the queen of Benin answered the phone. And she could speak English. He shared his research and story. And she gave him an email address and said, I want you to put all that in writing and send it to me. He emailed her not knowing if he would ever get a response back. One night, early morning actually, 4 a.m., his phone dings on the side of the bed. Picks up the phone and he's got a new email. And it was from the Queen of Benin. And the email said, We are smiling as we read this. You are related to the ninth king of Alada. Dear Prince, we invite you to come home. We will have a big party for you. He was so excited, he woke his wife up, and, and he told her, he says, listen, 
I'm royalty. I'm a prince. And that makes you a princess. She said, okay, I've got to wake up at six. She rolled back over and went back to sleep. Nevertheless, he accepted their invitation and he traveled 5,000 miles. When you stepped off the plane at the airport, there were hundreds of people there to welcome him and celebrate royalty coming home. They took him to the palace. They put him in what they considered royal clothing. And people would walk up to him and they would bow. So in response, he would bow. And then they would bow. And then he would bow. And then they would bow. And he finally looked at the queen and he says, I don't understand what's happening right now. And she looked at him and she said, Prince, you're not supposed to bow. Prince, princess, you're not supposed to bow. bow down to poverty. I refuse to bow down to racism. I refuse to bow down to anxiety. I refuse to bow down to anything that is contrary to who I am in Christ Jesus because he made me more than a conqueror. Why don't we act like it? I'm done bowing down. It's over. That's not how a child of God should act. That's not how we respond to life. We've been created as kings and priests. It's legacy living. And it's time that we start living like it. Thanks for listening to the Destiny Community Church Podcast. To learn more about DCC, including our service times and location, visit us at destinycommunitychurch.org.